We look this morning into James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And I've given the title of my message today, The Foolishness of Favoritism. It has nothing to do with ice cream or food or anything like that. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or even sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, these are words that you have given by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would apply them to our lives today, that you would teach us, Lord, what you would want us to learn. And I pray that the words of my mouth today, the meditations of our hearts, I pray that they would be pleasing in your sight. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a story about a woman who happened to live on the wrong side of the tracks and wanted to attend a very fashionable church. And so she talked to the pastor, and he suggested that she go home and think about it carefully for a week. And so she did. At the end of the week, she met the pastor, and he said, Well, now, let's not be too hasty here. Uh, Go home and read your Bible for an hour a day this week, and then come back and tell me if you still think you want to join this church. She was kind of wondering what's going on, but she did. The next week she was back, assuring the pastor that she wanted to become a member of that congregation. But in exasperation, he said, I have one more suggestion. Pray every day this week and ask the Lord if he really wants you to join this church. You kind of get the impression that he didn't really want her to join that church. So he didn't see her for six months. Happened to meet her on the street one day and asked her what she had decided. She said, I did what you asked me to do. 
I went home and prayed, and one day as I was praying, it's as if the Lord said this to me. Don't worry about getting into that church. I've been trying to get into it myself for the last 20 years. (laughs) I wonder if the pastor got the message, huh? Personal favoritism. That's what James writes about in this passage of Scripture, and evidently it was a problem in the early church. And if you read through the New Testament, you see that that manifested itself in in several ways. Uh, Jewish believers favored Jewish believers over Gentile believers. There's many, many examples of that in the New Testament. In the church at Corinth, there were different groups who had their favorite pastor. Remember, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. And then the real spiritual one says, no, I'm of Jesus. So there were these little groups, you know, uh, divided up who was their, their favorite pastor. I'm glad I'm the only one here because then there's no other pastors to be favorite. Here, what do we see in our text? It has to do with wealth. There was personal favoritism being displayed amongst the readers to whom James is writing in terms of money. Are you rich or are you poor? James says this needs to stop. (laughs) There ought to be no personal favoritism within the family of God. We are all on one level. Someone has said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. (laughs) And so... There's no room for personal favoritism. In fact, it's a foolish thing. And James gives us three reasons why that is the case. First of all, when we show favoritism, we pass judgment on people. He gives a hypothetical situation which may have happened in the churches in those days. He says, for if a man comes into your assembly, verse 2, he's got a gold ring and he's dressed in fine clothes. And then there's a poor man that comes in and he's dressed in dirty clothes. And you say to the wealthy man, oh, we've got a great seat for you. Probably in the front row because nobody sits in the front row, right? Got a great seat for you. And then this shabbily dressed person comes in and says, um, yeah, there might be a, ah, maybe a chair over there in the back. Maybe at my footstool, you could, you could sit there. And then he asks a question. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? What, what, what's the answer he's expecting? Yes, you have. Yes, you have. If you treat the rich person better than you treat the poor person, you have made yourself a judge, James says. You are saying that one person is more important than the other. Or one person is valued more than the other. And James says that is wrong. That is an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, one of the reasons why this is wrong is because God makes no distinctions among us. We are all on the same level. If anyone is to be favored, it's Jesus, right? Because uh, James describes Jesus in verse 1 as our glory. Lord Jesus Christ. So he's the exalted one. He's the favored one. All of us are on the same level and should not have an attitude of personal favoritism. 
James, I think, illustrates this truth in his life. James was a brother of Jesus. James was a leading apostle in the Jerusalem church. And yet as he writes this letter, he doesn't say, um, just recall who I am. Okay, I'm James, remember? I am the brother of Jesus. I am the leader of the Jerusalem church. So I'm a little bit higher than, than you people. He doesn't do that. He describes them as brethren, as brothers. That's family terminology, right? Family terminology. We are in this together. He's not exalting himself in any way because the only one to be exalted is Jesus. And so whether we are rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Aren't you glad that the way, that's the way that God treats us? No matter who we are, He makes no distinction among us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and all who come to Jesus in faith are part of the family of God, and we should welcome one another with open arms. And how about a hug? That mass mandate is gone, so let's hug each other. <laughs> it's about time, isn't it? We welcome. In fact, the Bible talks about greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I'll give my wife one today when, when, when I get home. That's what she says. Kiss me at home, not in church. Samuel Colgate was a great businessman, and he was a member of a congregation that committed itself to pray that God would bring the salvation of souls to their congregation, that people would be saved. And so God answered that prayer. And one of those who was wanting to join the church was a woman whose life had been quite difficult, had been involved in all kinds of sinful things. And and yet she came to Jesus and she was going to share her testimony at the church. And she did. And when she wanted to join then, um, the silence was oppressive. And finally, one member moved that the action be postponed. Well, we got to really think about this, you know, a woman like that with that kind of a past. And so Mr. Colgate stood up and he said, I guess we made a blunder when we asked the Lord to save sinners. We didn't specify what kind of sinners we wanted. I think we'd better ask God to forgive us for not specifying what kind of sinner we wanted. He probably didn't understand what we wanted. Now, if you're sitting in that congregation, I hope the conviction of God came upon that church. Like, you're going to make distinctions among people. Here's the kind of sinners we want. We don't want those kind of sinners. We want these kind. That's an attitude of personal favoritism. What a contrast we see in the book of Revelation, the picture of the church gathered around the throne, Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in robes, palm branches in their hands. And what are they doing? They're exalting the only one that ought to be exalted, Jesus, right? They cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If we are going to be united in heaven, 
Maybe it's time we start being united now, right? No matter what background we come from, you love Jesus, I love Jesus, we're family, right? And I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Washed in His fountain, cleansed by His blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod together. No personal favoritism. When we do that, we pass judgment on people. We make distinctions among ourselves. Secondly, when we show favoritism, there is a sense in which we pass judgment upon God. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So when it comes to our treatment of the rich and the poor that James addresses here, would you say that most people tend to favor the rich? For some reason, it seems like people seem to be so impressed with wealth. Maybe because that's what they wish for themselves. I don't know. If you look at what James tells us here, God's view of the rich and poor is strikingly different, isn't it, than ours in the world today? Verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world? To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. And what's the obvious answer to that? Yes. <laughs> yes. God has indeed chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 1, which we read from already this morning, where he describes groups of people that in the eyes of the world would be unimpressive. Right? Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Consider your calling, brethren, writing to this Corinthian church, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. So God chooses the weak, the poor, the lowly to be his own, and that's why we need to be careful how we treat people that in the eyes of the world are, are not really that important. Maybe they're not that smart or that intelligent or that educated or that wealthy or whatever it might be. And we shouldn't give the impression that there are classifications within the family of God, you know, that you're, you're, you're kind of here and I'm here. And, and James says, don't, don't make those distinctions. Then he talks about the rich. Verse 6, he says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And again, what's the obvious answer? Yes. That's what was happening in the day in which James wrote this epistle. And we can say the same is kind of happening today, isn't it? Who are the ones who oppress the Christian? Who are the ones that want to silence the believer? Well, is it the wealthy tech 
companies that are going to silence those who have conservative values? Is it the wealthy athletes? Wealthy Hollywood? The wealthy media? It just seems like that's where the oppression is coming today, silencing those who would want to preach the truth. So believers in James' day were being oppressed by the rich, and then they come to church, and what do they see? Oh, you sit over here. You know, you're 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 one of the uppity ups. Uh, yeah, there might be a spot over there. You see what James is is, is getting at? Now, that's not to say that everyone who is rich oppresses believers, or everyone who is rich blasphemes God. Certainly not. But God's word is clear, isn't it? That it is difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Didn't Jesus say that? It is easier for someone to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why is that? Riches tend to make people prideful, tend to make them self-sufficient, and even oppressive money becomes their, their God. And so James says, don't make distinctions among you. Don't see people as fitting into some group but see them as individuals before God. Because we live in a culture where everybody's in some kind of a group, right? Identity politics, you've got to put someone in a group because everybody's being oppressed and so forth. We, we don't look at people that way in the church. We are individuals before God, and, and we, we don't make those distinctions. I have run across in my years of ministry of Examples where people, churches tend to favor the rich. I remember when I was serving uh, many years ago in one community and had a visitor come to our church and was chatting with them. And they had gone to another church in that town and said, the reason why I'm here is because our pastor will not touch the issue of abortion with a 10-foot pole. I said, why is that? doesn't want to offend the rich in the congregation. That's making distinctions, isn't it? Would you like me to get into the pulpit and think, okay, I better not talk about this because someone in the congregation might not like that. We need to be faithful to the Word, not wondering, what are the rich going to say? Or what's so-and-so? Are they going to stop giving if I say something that they don't like? I know of a congregation, they were in their building program and at the altar table, they had done something that one wealthy family in the congregation didn't like. Guess what they did? They changed it. Just for the sake of that one wealthy person who threatened, I'm not going to give anymore unless you change that. Is that the way we ought to function? And James says, so that's kind of what's going on, you know. The wealthy come and you say, oh, man, you know. What, they see dollar signs? Our budget? Just think what it would be. James says, you are making distinctions among yourselves. I read about a man who attended a church for several months. But every Sunday, not a single person talked to him. Just totally ignored. He was one who was dressed not the... Um, Greatest in the world, and 
And finally, after many months, uh, one of the deacons spoke to him. And he told the deacon, he said, I've attended this church for six months, and you are the first person who has ever talked to me. I hope that never happens in this congregation, where someone can come and it's just like you don't even know they're there. Ever been in a church like that? You attend a church and it's just like they don't even, they didn't even know you had come. And that's what's happening in some churches. We don't want that here. We don't make distinctions among people. Notice thirdly, when we show favoritism, we pass judgment on ourselves. James gives us a principle in verse 8 that should govern all of our relationships with another. He calls it the royal law, which he defines as loving our neighbor as ourselves. Verse 8, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you are doing that, he said, you're doing well. However, the question among the Jews in that day, well, who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who then is my neighbor? Well, for many of them, it was one of their own. and That was it. My little group, right? It's my neighbor. And I, yeah, I kind of love them. Pretty good at that. For others, it was basically whomever they wanted it to be. If they didn't want it to be someone else, then they just chose not to do that. But, but James says, if you don't love everyone, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, You are guilty, right? Verse 8, if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In other words, you might love that little circle of yours, you know, the ones you really want to talk to on Sunday, you know, that, that group, your little fellowship group. He said, you may love those in your little group of friends, but, he said, but that's not enough. You need to love all people without any kind of favoritism. Now, James seems to anticipate that some of his readers will say, well, that's not really that big of a deal. Because after all, I obey some of the other commands and you know how that works. The good outweighs the bad, of course. But uh, James says, no, it's, it's, it's not really the, the way that it works. One author says, the Jews tended to regard the law as a series of detached commands. To keep one of these commands was to gain a credit. To break one was to incur debt. Therefore, a man could add up the ones he kept and subtract the ones he broke, as it were, and emerge either with a moral credit or a debit balance. (laughs) And that's how a lot of people look at it today, right? Well, here's the commands of God. And if I just keep a little bit more than I break, because God has scales in heaven, right? And you know, if the good outweighs the bad, and I stand at the door of heaven, and Jesus said, what rights do you have to enter in? Well, look at the scales, Lord. I've, I've kind of done a lot of good things, you know. And, you know, shouldn't the good out, 
outweigh the bad. But that's not how it works. God does not grade on a curve. Look at verse 10. James says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become what? Guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. You've broken it. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, to perform them. So what is Paul saying? What is James saying? If you think that it is like a set of scales, I've got news for you. You break one of those commands, you're a lawbreaker. Just as if you broke them all. Kent Hughes reminds us that it takes one lie to make a liar, right? One adulterous act to make an adulterer. One theft to make a thief. One murder to make a murderer. And only one broken law to make a lawbreaker. So if I had a balloon in my hands, how many pin pokes would it take to break that balloon? How many do you think ten? I hope nobody raises their hand, right? One. It's one. So any sin is serious in the sight of God, even the sin of personal favoritism. Now, there's good news here, because James goes on to speak about the law of liberty. Verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, or the law of freedom. What is that? Quite a contrast from breaking the commands of God and judgment, the law of liberty. The law of liberty really isn't a law in the sense of something that judges us. It's an expression that is used to describe the gospel. It's the promise of God that in Christ we have been set free. Here's how one author puts it. He said, the admonition to speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty is tantamount to saying, live and act as a true believer who has been saved by God's grace and who will be judged on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. That righteousness frees the believer from the law of bondage and judges him under the redeeming law of liberty, God's word of the gospel, which frees the repentant sinner from the bondage of sin. So what does that mean? In Jesus Christ, I am forgiven. I am set free. There is no condemnation upon me. And because I've been forgiven and set free, that ought to change the way that I live. And that's what James is getting at here. So the law of liberty is the standard by which I live in relationship to others. If God accepts me just as I am, how, I, how ought I to accept others, right? 
just as they are. No distinctions. If God doesn't show favoritism, am I to show favoritism? When I understand how God looks at me through Jesus, then I can understand how I ought to look at others as well. Shortly after World War II, there was a Christian college that sponsored a retreat in the mountains of California. And at that retreat, there were three pilots. One was in Hitler's Luftwaffe during World War II. Another flew for Japan. And another was a U.S. Air Force pilot. These three men didn't know Jesus, and they didn't know each other. But during that conference... (laughs) Something happened in the lives of all three of those men. They all committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And they closed that conference. They were asked to take a stick to throw it into the fire as a gesture of their willingness to burn out for Jesus. So here you have the Luftwaffe pilot, the Japanese pilot, U.S. airport pilot all committing their lives to Christ at that conference. They closed that conference by singing, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. And those three men, (laughs) can't you picture that? Those three men stood in a circle, tears running down their face as brothers in Jesus. Isn't that a picture of the gospel, what it does? How it unites those who may have been enemies. It it changes their lives so that prior to that conference, I I can imagine they probably had some hard feelings over those whom they fought against in World War II. But boy, they left hand in hand. Brothers in Jesus. Because Jesus had saved them. They kneeled at the level ground at the foot of the cross. And that's what made the difference in their lives. Now, I want you to go back to the first verse of this text as we close. Because James describes there the foundation of a life where there is no personal favoritism. And notice what it is. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Richard Lenski says it is worth noting that here and throughout this epistle, James deals with Christian conduct, but ever does so on the basis of faith in Jesus. That's the foundation, a living relationship with Jesus. And so that's the question we need to ask as we, as we look at this whole section. Do we have a living faith in Jesus? Do you have a living relationship with Jesus? And if you do have a living relationship with Jesus, it is going to change the way you look at people. Because when you realize what God has done for you, how He has saved you, how He has forgiven you, how He has cleansed you, it changes the way you look at others. As believers in Jesus, this is our calling. And in Jesus alone, we have the power to fulfill it. We have a divided world, a divided country. 
What is the only thing that can bring unity? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can unite those who are divided. And when we have a living relationship with Jesus, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And we love one another because Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to know you, the privilege to love you, to be a part of the family of God. And Lord, help us to welcome those who love you. Help us, Lord, to with open arms receive people in need of a Savior, pointing them to you, Lord, that you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. And when we are part of the family of God, there's such a special bond that unites us together. And Lord, if you could unite Jew and Gentile together in the early church, you can unite us too. Do that, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask.